0: Song of Solomon chapter (coughs) 8, verses 6 and 7. Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. The coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would be utterly contemned. I always hate to see the end of a series come. I don't know why. I just get into it and I start enjoying it. And I'm sort of sad seeing this series come to an end this morning. But in this eighth chapter of Song of Solomon, one outline of this chapter is titled, The Bride and the Bridegroom Speak to Each Other. And as we see them speaking to each other, what we're going to see in these verses and maybe in some others that we mentioned, we're going to see the strength of true love. Remember, we've approached this Song of Solomon from the standpoint of three main characters. There's the shepherd, there's the Shulamite bride who loves her shepherd, and who then there's Solomon who sort of comes along the way several chapters ago and was unable to draw this Shulamite woman away from her shepherd husband. They had a great love for one another. We'll also see the strength and we'll see the stability and the superiority of true Christian love. Now, what is true Christian love? It is that love that Christ has for us. It is that love that we are to have for him. And it is that love that we are to have for one another. You know, as we've looked at this Song of Solomon, we've approached it from the standpoint of Ephesians chapter 5, where the Lord used the husband-wife relationship to talk about his relationship to his churches and how his churches should feel about him. And then we applied it in our daily living, in our daily lives in relation with the Lord as one of his churches. Our society, when it comes to thinking about and talking about love, I think our society is sort of filled with the attitude or the idea of a fairy tale, Hollywood type of love. You know, they just met and their eyes met, and maybe their eyes sparkled a little bit, and fireworks went off, and the thunderbolt hit, and they fell madly in love with one another. And how does this fairy tale end? They lived happily. Ever after. Well, I got news for you. Married life is not like that, right? We live happily, but trials come, difficulties come, problems come, and sometimes even husband and wife don't agree with one another and then they have to settle that in talking with one another. The idea of the thunderbolt, the idea of the fairy tale type of love may work in the movies. But it does not work in real life. In real life, what you're going to find is your wife, your husband, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, whoever, may have a number of faults. Now, if you don't believe that's true, you can just ask my wife. I remember the day that I was ordained to the gospel ministry. And at my ordination... The preacher that was asking the questions, you know, ordination service, the preacher asked questions of the one that's being ordained. And so the preacher asked her this. He said, now you got to remember my wife married a former rock music disc jockey. Okay. And so the preacher asked her, you didn't marry a preacher. How do you feel about all of this? And her reply was, well, I took him for better or for worse. To which the preacher said, well, you didn't know how much worse it was going to get, did you? And Joni said, no, it didn't. But when we get married and we get into real life, we find out that life is not always a bed of roses. But what happens is that if we really love one another, I mean with a true love, the kind of love we're talking about here in the Song of Solomon, that kind of love will overlook our faults. That kind of love will overlook our failures and that kind of love will cause us to truly love one another. Do you realize that that same thing is true in our relationship with the Lord and in our church relationships? Aren't you thankful that God overlooks our shortcomings? Aren't you thankful that God forgives our sins? Aren't you thankful that regardless, our God loves us, And he cares for us and he wants us to faithfully serve him. In our church relationship, in our relationship with one another, as brothers and sisters in Christ and as members of this church, we need to just overlook one another's shortcomings, minor offenses, things like that. We need to pray for one another. We need to love one another. And I think we do in this church because true love is both a command and a commitment. The command is this, husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. But the command also is that wives are to love their husbands, that children are to honor and to love their parents. And so again, we who are members of this church have a command from God. And it is found in the 22nd chapter of the book of Matthew as Jesus was asked about what is the most important commandment there is. What is the first commandment and most important? And Jesus said in verse 37, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And then he said, And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. We're to love God first. We're to love God foremost. But we are to love one another and that is a command from our Lord. True love will cover a multitude of shortcomings and there is great strength. And in fact, that's the title of this message, the power of true love. There's great strength in true love. So the first thing we look at this morning is what I call the power of committed love. The power of committed love or true love. You look at what he says, Back here in this 8th chapter of Song of Solomon, in the first verse that we read, he says, love, this is about the middle of the verse, for love is as strong as death. Love is as strong as death. Well, what's it saying? Well, death is permanent, folks. Death is permanent. You don't die physically and then come back. It's appointed unto man. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. I said we often, we don't misquote this scripture, but sometimes we don't read everything that's there. But it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. You're going to die in the flesh. That's a given. That's just, that's scripture. And you're not coming back in this fleshly body. Now, if you're saved, one of these days, we're going to get the glorified body, right? We're looking forward to that. But death is permanent. And true love, committed love, love for God, the love that God wants us to have for him and wants us to have for one another should be just as permanent as death. We're talking about the husband-wife relationship. What does Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 say? Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife. And what does that word cleave mean? It means to be glued with gorilla glue, all right? because that's supposed to be permanent bonding, I guess, cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Listen, Christ's love for us is unending. You realize that Jesus is never going to stop loving you. He's never going to stop loving me. We studied last Sunday night, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, which said what? Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. He says, just think about, just spend some time contemplating what kind of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. And we talked about that word bestowed because it has the idea of he's given to us, but it's in the perfect tense, which makes it permanent. He's given it to us. And any time that becomes present tense, God's going to still be giving us this great love. So God's love is unending. It is a permanent possession of the child of God. Just listen to Romans, the 8th chapter. Romans chapter 8. Wonderful verses here beginning in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation... Or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And then he says this for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what Paul's saying there? Pardon the grammar, but there ain't nothing gonna separate you from the love of Christ. We have people today who say, well, you know, be careful that God might quit loving you if you commit certain sins and so forth. No, God's gonna love you. I was dealing with a man who believed that you could, he said, I can, I can accept what Baptists teach except for that one thing, it's security of the believer. And I told him this, I said, look, my children are my children, they're always gonna be my children and I am never going to quit loving them. I may get upset with them. I may, they were younger, I said, I may have to chasten them. I may have to really get on to them harshly. I said, but they're my children. And nothing can change that fact. And nothing can change the fact that we are the children of God. Hebrews 13, 5. Remember, Jesus said, I will never leave thee. We understand what never means. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So the love of Christ for us is never going to end. And listen, folks, our love for him should never end either. Our love for him should be just as permanent as his love for us. You know, that sort of rules out and I think there are people that think they do this, falling in love with the Lord and falling out of love with the Lord. You know, there are folks that if, well, I'll serve God and see what it'll get for me. I'll be faithful until I don't get what I want. I'll be faithful until God doesn't do what I want him to do. And so they fall out of love, they say, with the Lord. No, this love for God ought to be, this love for Christ ought to be permanent, as permanent as death. And then if we truly love him, will not be ashamed to be identified with him. Look at verse 1. Look at what he says here. I would kiss thee, yea, I should not be despised. She says, in fact, this is the bride speaking. She says, when I should find thee without, I would kiss thee, yea, I should not be despised. You know what she's talking about? Look at what it says, I find thee without. You know what that means? Outside, out in the public. You know what it's talking about? We call it PDA today. Public display of affection. Now, you didn't do that in that day. But public display of affection of this young woman for her shepherd. I think today we have more PDA than I care to see sometimes. But she just said, "I'm, I'm not ashamed of you. Even when we're out and about, I will kiss you. And in one place she said, I'll kiss you with the kisses of my mouth. Luke chapter nine, verse 26, Jesus said, for whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the son of man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his father's and of the holy angels. Jesus said, don't be ashamed of me. I wonder in this day, how many people are ashamed? How many of God's people are ashamed to be identified with Jesus? You say, well, surely not. Well, surely so. They don't even show up to worship him. They don't want to be identified. You, you, you think this may be that message I talked about in Sunday school, folks. I told a Sunday school class I'm wanting to preach a message called Get Real. We preachers know how to soften words and say things and sort of disguise them where they don't sound like what we're saying, you know. that's called job security. That's one of these days, I'm getting tired of doing that. One of these days I'm going to let go and I'm going to preach a message called Get Real and this may be part of it. But do you think if a person will not show up in a worship service to worship God. Do you think they're going to witness a Christ out in the public? I think many, many people who profess Christ today are ashamed to be identified with Christ. And one of the ways we're identified with Christ is by our works. First John chapter four, verse two, hereby know ye the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Are you willing to confess that Jesus is who he said he was, that Jesus did what he said he did? Titus chapter 1 verse 16, unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God. Got any folks like that in our world today? because listen to the end of it, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him being abominable and disobedient and to every good work reprobate. The word of God says there are people who will profess to know God. There are people who profess to know Christ, but their lives don't bear that out. They're disobedient. What does it say? They're abominable and unto every good work reprobate. If you really love the Lord... You'll not be ashamed of the Lord. There is the principle of fidelity to Christ, but there's also the practice of faithfulness to Christ because you look here in the second verse and look at what she says in verse 2 I would lead thee and bring thee into my mother's house, who would instruct me, I would cause thee to drink of spiced wine of the juice of my pomegranate. You know what she's promising him? I'll welcome you. And I will give you the very best that I have. The wine of the juice of my pomegranate. Somebody said this, those that are pleased with Christ must study to be pleasing to him. I like that. If you're pleased with Jesus, what you need to be doing is saying, I want to be pleasing to my Lord. Folks, Christ deserves our very best. God deserves our very best. He deserves the first and the finest of everything that we have. It doesn't matter whether it's time. It doesn't matter whether it's our talents. It doesn't matter whether it's our treasures. And that's a nice word for money. Okay. God deserves the very best. And if we truly love him, we will practice this faithfulness to Christ. We'll give him our best. We'll want to sacrifice for him all the way over in 2 Corinthians, the 8th chapter. And I'm going to take the time to read there this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we have an example of some folks that love the Lord. I mean, they really love the Lord. You look at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. You know what he's saying right there? He said, they were poor. No, I'm sorry. They weren't poor. They were poor. Okay, there's a difference. You can be poor, but then you can be poor, all right? And they were poor. They didn't even know many times where their next meal was coming from. And yet, look at what he says. It abounded under the riches of their liberality, and he explains it. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty, that we would receive the gift and take up on us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Paul's saying right there, here's what happened. They didn't have they didn't have anything. They had virtually nothing. And yet they begged us to take an offering. That's the way we'd say it today. They just said, we want to give an offering. We want to help with the ministering of the saints, and so let us give something. And we would say today in our parlance that Paul was saying, Boy, that just blew our minds. We didn't expect that. We weren't asking that. And yet these people had such love for the Lord. And I'm going to show you how they had love for the Lord because it says in verse five, and this they did not as we hoped. Maybe they give a little, but they wanted to give a lot. This they did not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. There's the difference. They gave themselves to God first. And then see what happens when you give yourself to God first, you find out that God owns everything that you have. It's not mine. It's God's. It belongs to him anyway. I'm not doing God some big great favor by giving him an offering. I'm just giving back to him what's already his and he's let me use it for a while. And that's what he's saying. And these people had such love for the Lord. And they'd given themselves to God that they just said, we want to help. We want to give an offering. They practiced faithfulness to Christ and then True love will cause preference for the fellowship of Christ. If we truly love Christ, we will want to avoid the things that would break our fellowship with him. Now, we can never lose our salvation, but folks, we sure can break our fellowship with the Lord. You look back here to verse 4. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you stir not up, nor awake my love till he please. You know what that word stir means? It means to arouse, awaken Arouse to action. Don't get him stirred up. And again, a child of God would not want to do anything to bring God's chastisement, shouldn't want to, to bring God's chastisement, or to break the fellowship that we have with our Lord. Matthew Henry put it this way, and I really liked this. Never do anything to provoke Christ to withdraw, which we are very prone to do. Why should you put such an affront upon him Why should you be such enemies to yourselves?" You get what he's saying? When we do the things that break our fellowship with the Lord, when we do the things that bring the chastisement of God, we're enemies to ourselves. We're hurting ourselves. We're not advancing ourselves, we're hurting ourselves. We already know, and we talked about this in this series, Isaiah chapter 59, first two verses, it is our sin, our iniquities that separate us from God, that God will not hear our prayers. It's not that he cannot, it's that he will not. First John chapter 2, verse 1. John says over and over, don't sin. Child of God, don't sin. He said, you're going to, but don't. But when you do, you have an advocate with the Father. And that's why 1 John 1, 9 says we're to confess our sins to God. If we'll confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there is, first of all, what we call the strength of committed love. But then there's the stability of committed love. This true love, this real love for the Lord. You look at verse 7. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can the floods drown it. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can the floods drown it. True love is not affected by circumstances. You don't fall into love and fall out of love. In fact, love is a growth process. I think especially between a husband and wife. You start out, you think you know each other and then you get married and you find out you didn't know each other. No, but as the years go by, you grow together and that glue, that cleaving together becomes stronger. And so it is a, in a sense a growth process. You just don't fall in and out of love. Now when we're disobedient as I said, we break our fellowship with the Lord, but as mentioned also he still loves us. Wouldn't it be something if A child disobeyed a parent. That parent said, that's it. You're not mine anymore. Get out. But God doesn't do that. He still loves us. We're still his. In this love, first of all, the shepherd demonstrates his care for the Shulamite woman. Verse three, his left hand should be under my head and his right hand should embrace me. What's that talking about? I think it's a picture of tender care. His left hand's under her head, his right hand with his right hand, he embraces her. And that tender care is a beautiful picture, I believe, of our Lord's tender care for us. Does the Lord have tender care for us? Well, certainly he does. Over in James chapter 5 and verse 11, we see what James refers to or what we call the compassion of the Lord. Listen to James chapter 5. You have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful Full of tender mercy. That word pitiful has the idea of he's, he's full, extremely full of compassion. See, some people picture God as a God that's just waiting for people to step out of line so he can zap them back into line. Well, our God is a God who is full of compassion. He is a God who is full of tender care for us as his children. Psalm 78. Verse 38, but he, talking about God, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity, talking about Israel, and destroyed them not. Now, how many times did Israel probably deserve to be destroyed in their journey from Egypt to the promised land? There's a bunch. You know, they, they come to the Red Sea and they start complaining. God just brought us out here to kill us. Let the Egyptians kill us out here by the Red Sea. God opens the Red Sea, lets them through, drowns the Egyptian army. They go a little bit farther. We don't have any water. God's brought us out here to let us die of thirst. Well, God provides them water. They go a little bit farther. Well, God's brought us out here to let us starve to die. I mean, just over and over and over. They're accusing God, accusing God, accusing God. And God didn't destroy them. That verse continues. Yea, many a time turned He His anger away and did not stir up all of His wrath. How many times have we deserved God's full chastisement as His children, and yet God turned away His wrath? He gave us that opportunity to make things right, to confess our sins to him, and he forgave us our sins. I love Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. Why didn't God really chasten me when I needed it? He's compassionate. He's forgiving. Verse 23 says, They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Just every day, day after day, God's compassions are renewed each day and God is great to be faithful. Then verses 31 through 33 say this, for the Lord will not cast off forever. Sort of takes care of those folks that want to lose their salvation, doesn't it? The Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies, for he doth not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. I never enjoyed chastening my children. I never said, oh boy, I, get to, I just didn't get to do it enough. But anyway, I never said, oh boy, I get to chasten you. I get to spank you today. No, you know what I felt like after chastening either one of my children? I felt like the meanest daddy in the whole wide world. Didn't like it. God does not enjoy chastening his children. Now there's a point at which chastening is required. If you've ever been spanked by God, you know what I'm talking about, okay? There's a point at which it is required, but God doesn't enjoy doing it. And then not only the compassion of the Lord, there's the mercy of the Lord. Psalm 103, verse 17 talks about God is everlasting, but the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him. The mercy of the Lord. Psalm 108 verse 4, God's love is boundless for thy mercy is great above the heavens. Joel chapter 2 verse 13 says, God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And then in Micah Chapter 7, verse 18, God forgives sin. He delights in mercy because it says, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. God delights in being merciful to us, folks. How much should that cause us to just want to demonstrate this great love that we should have for him? We're familiar with the letters to the seven churches of Asia. Two churches God commended. He said, you're doing well. Five of those he condemned. But you know why he sent those letters to those churches? The whole idea of five of those letters is this, repent. God's saying, get it right. I know it said repent or else. But God's desire was not the, or else. God's desire was to repent. God always wants his people to repent. God always wants his children to come back. I always wanted and want today my children in fellowship with me as a dad. And God wants his children in fellowship with him today. He wants his churches in fellowship with him. The church at Corinth received at least two letters. There's some suggestion that there may have been two more that were not deemed inspired, but at least two that were inspired by God, First and Second Corinthians, written to the church at Corinth. And if you read that first letter to that church at Corinth, they were in a mess. They were divided over preachers. They had issues about marriage and divorce. They had somebody in the church that was committing grievous sin and hadn't dealt with it. There were those in the church that were denying the resurrection. I mean, you just read that, first letter to the church at Corinth and you look at what a mess it was in and yet God says hey I'm writing I'm trying to get you back get you back I want you to be what I want you to be because God delights in mercy and then this shepherd declares his claim to her says set me as a seal upon thine heart as a seal upon thine arm this word seal talks about a signet No document was considered authentic in that day, except it had the king's signet, the king's seal in it. And they'd melt wax and put it on there, and the the signet ring would be pressed down into that wax, and it would be identified as being authentic. And so he says, just set me as a seal on your right arm. The love of Christ for us and the love of Christ in us is a mark of our authenticity. We've talked about John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35 in this series. Jesus says we love one another as he has loved us. How great was the Lord's love for us. Oh, he just left heaven and came to earth and took on human form and willingly served others while he was walking on this earth. I think about him washing the feet of his disciples. Then he willingly went to the cross and gave himself as a sacrifice for our sin. And he says, you love each other the way that I loved you. And then he says this, and we're familiar with this verse. He says, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. The world, as I've said before, can fake doctrine. The world can fake worship. The world can fake a lot of things, but the world cannot fake the love of Christ in an individual. It needs to be real, folks. Romans 13 Verse 14, put you on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Wear Jesus just like his a uniform. Don't be ashamed of him. Let people see him in your life. Don't be ashamed to wear him in public and we should not make him ashamed of us. Amen. I love Hebrews eleven sixteen. It's somewhere around in there where it talks about Abraham and Abel and Noah and many of those and it says God was not ashamed to be called their God and you know every time I read that I think is he ashamed to be called my God have I lived in such a way have I not been what I should be so that God would say well you know he's mine but I'm not bragging about it No, God was not ashamed to be called their God. And then he decrees his charity toward her in verse 10. She says, then was I in his eyes as one that found favor. That word favor is the word shalom. You know what shalom means? Peace. Peace. I was in his eyes, talking about her shepherd, as one who found peace. Now, peace is not the absence of trials. We know that. Peace is not the absence of trials. Peace is calmness in the midst of trials. Things are going haywire. Maybe we're being persecuted. Maybe we're being ridiculed. Maybe someone's making fun of us for the cause of Christ. And what happens is God gives us that peace. And we just faithfully serve him. Jesus accompanies us in trials. We're familiar with the 23rd Psalm, verse four. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Notice David didn't say, I don't have to go through the valley. I got to go through it. And if you were tending sheep in that day, you had to go through the valley. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. No matter what we as children of God go through, we can always be assured that our Lord is with us. That's what peace is. Yes, times can get difficult, and they may get worse in the days to come, but we can be assured that Jesus is going through that valley of the shadow of death with us. He never said we wouldn't have to go through the valley, did he? There's a song that I love, one of these days, I want to be able to sing it. If I can find somebody who can play it in a key that I can hit. Sister Karen's good. I don't know if she's found that key yet because my vocal range is all over the place, right? Now, I've shared this song with you before, but I want to share some of the words with you because I think it talks about this very thing. A man named Audrey Crouch wrote it and it's called Through It All. And I sort of see it as my, one of my anthems. I have several anthems, this is one of those. I've had many tears and sorrows. I've had questions for tomorrow. There have been times that I didn't know right from wrong. But in every situation, God gave me blessed consolation that my trials come to only make me strong. Then he sings the chorus Through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to depend upon his word. And then he has a refrain I thank God for the mountains. I thank him for the valleys. And I thank him for the storms that he's brought me through. For if I'd never had a problem, I wouldn't know that he could solve them. I'd never know what faith in the Lord can do. Through it all, he's been there with us through it all. Remember, Hebrews thirteen 5, I'll never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Then there is the superiority of Christian love. Look at what he says in the end of verse 7. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would be utterly contemned. It refers to wealth, the giving of wealth. This word contemned or condemned talks about being openly mocked, openly despised. If you just sold your house and you took every penny you got for that house to try to buy love, couldn't do it. Money can't buy love. And that's what he's saying here, giving an offering. Now, I'm thankful we have people that give and we have people that give some good offerings and I appreciate that. I know the Lord appreciates that. But folks, giving an offering is no substitute for giving yourself to the Lord. Amen. I've heard some preachers say, well, if you, if you don't come to church, just send an offering. No, here's what I want you to do, give yourself to the Lord. Then you know what you'll do? You'll come to church and you'll give an offering, right? Remember those folks in the churches of Macedonia. They gave themselves first to the Lord. First Timothy chapter six, Paul's warning Timothy of people. He says here in verses five and six, who consent not to wholesome words, supposing that gain is godliness. And he says to Timothy, from such withdraw yourself. You'll need to be friends and following those folks and and trying to act like them because then he says this, but godliness with contentment is gain. You don't have to have a million dollars to be considered rich. You just be thankful what God has given you. Be content with that and you be a godly person. You live for Christ. And he says, that's wealth beyond comparison. 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 and 18. Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. That Here's the answer. Here's the key. That they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. That's what God wants from us. Do good. Just do good. Be rich in good works, in faithful service to God. Be ready to share with others. In fact, if you go back to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, I don't know what was going on, everything that was going on there, but remember that the Apostle Paul told them this, verse 28, Let him that stole steal no more, rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, not so he can build up a huge bank account and lord it over people, but the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. What's one of the reasons the Bible gives us for work? So we can help our brothers and sisters in Christ. Not only is true love better than gain, true love is the best gift. First Corinthians chapter one, the first eight verses, Paul talks about, in this first chapter, all the things that they'd been enriched by and enriched with in this church. And he says, I thank God on your behalf for the grace of God. Says in verse five, everything you're enriched by him and all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of the Lord. I mean, he just goes on and God had really blessed this church. But then you get over to chapter 12 And that's where he's talking about the misuse of the spiritual gifts that were in that church. And in the end of that 12th chapter, here's what he says. But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. There's something better than wisdom. There's something better than they were really caught up in speaking in tongues. There's something better than tongues. There's something better than healings. And what is that? And then you get to chapter 13, and he starts talking about it. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, and that word charity is that word for self-sacrificing love, and have not charity, I'm become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, And understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. And though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, self-sacrificing love, it profiteth me nothing. He says, if I don't have true love for the Lord and true love for my brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm just a bunch of noise. I'm just, as he says here, just a show unprofitable. So what's the better way? The better way is for the love of Christ to control us, the love of Christ to lead us. And we do that by giving ourselves to him first. We don't have to question Christ's love for us, do we? If I were to ask anybody, Anybody in this congregation? I think I could even ask the little children because what do we teach them to sing? I hope we do, still do. I'm pretty sure we do. Jesus loves me. I, we adults ought to sing that sometime, you know. Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. I could ask the little children of this church, does Jesus love you? And they'd say, yes, he does. Even a child doesn't question Christ's love. We don't have to question it. He's proven it. He's given himself on the cross as a sacrifice for us. That's how he's proved it. Here's the real question. Do we prove our love for Christ? The Lord's love for us is strong, it's stable, and it's superior. And so the question then is, do we have that same kind of love for our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ? This series of messages has been about the Lord's love for his churches. And I believe we could say without fear of any kind of disagreement that our Lord loves this church. He has blessed us beyond measure. You know, I, I just think back a couple of months when we were trying to meet and we had no air conditioning. And the word was, you know, to get, what's needed to replace that panel so we can have air conditioning again. It could be as much as six months. And here we are, it took four weeks to get what was going to take six months to get. You know why? I think some folks prayed. No, I know some folks, because I know at least one folk prayed. All right. And God answered prayers and out of his great love and concern, look where we are. Amen. And he just keeps doing for us. We should never tire of being faithful to God and of showing our love for Him and, and I believe we do this, showing our love for one another. How does the Lord feel about His churches? He loves His churches. He wants to bless His churches. Are we one of His churches? We better be or else I'm gone, okay? Yeah, I believe we're one of His churches. So how should we feel about Him? Folks, we ought to have just an endless supply of love for our Lord.